Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host, Julius, and this is episode 88, Adventures Galore, sans Albert. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Uh, we seem to be short on Albert today. I promise we're not intentionally trying to take over, but this time I have someone who will be very firmly on my side in all future coups. Welcome to Yitzchak Besser, my brother and cohort and many various games. Hi, listeners. It's great to be here, and I just want to wish a quick get well soon to Albert. Hopefully he's doing okay. I'm going to try to do you justice, buddy, while we're here on the show. Sure. Yeah, Albert's uh, not feeling well, and unfortunately, we've already had to reschedule a couple of times the past couple of weeks. Um, we do try and keep an every other week schedule when we can, but uh, I've been having my uh, Jewish high holidays and uh, festival booths and various other Jewish holidays going on around this time. So we're through that, but it's been sort of blocking away a bunch of the time we normally have to record. So we've had to reschedule and reschedule, and so tonight we just decided, you know what? We're just going to record, we're going to bring in a guest, and uh, so Yitzi's here to fill in the hole. Here we are. So here we are. Although it's definitely great to have you on, Yitz. Not that I don't see you often enough. Oh, uh, well, it's still, <laughs> it's a different sort of experience, and so I, I'm. it'll be fun to kind of get my feet wet into this sort of thing and see how you get to do it from the other side, as opposed to just being one of the many listeners. Sure. Well, let me ask you a first question. How much gaming do you do, just so uh, the audience knows? I try to do as much gaming as I can. I recently moved to Maryland, so I haven't really found a steady gaming group. But on the weekends, uh, a few of my friends and I get together, and we try and play uh, some sort of games that we have in our own personal collections at one of our apartments, generally sitting on the floor, drinking some sodas and eating chips or whatever else it is. And you guys should probably invest in the table. I try to tell them to play on the table all the time, but one of my friends sitting on the table for long periods of time bothers her, so she would rather like put her feet up and lean back uh, by sitting on the floor. So that's what ends up happening. <laughs> okay. And how much solo gaming do you get? Um, on uh, not a lot. Sometimes I'll get together. Like this past weekend, I managed to actually play a few a few different solo games. But um, it kind of depends on my mood. It depends on my availability with my, my friends and whether I'm willing to, you know, all right, let's totally get together with a, a solo game just for the fun of it. So comes and goes. And what, and what games have you been playing recently? So this past weekend, since we're talking solo gaming, I did manage to get in uh, a couple of runs of Dungeon Roll where I scored 24 both times. So I just made it to that seasoned explorer level. And I cannot crack for the life of me champion hero level which i guess to 30 points i think um so that was that was fun and then i also lost horribly in friday did not even make it to the red stage um <laughs> both of those are well known for, for being solo games so that that was rough um i've also been playing uh i got my friends in the kingdom builder which i have the big box for so i just taught a couple of uh, do some friends of mine had to play Kingdom Builder, and they then promptly schooled me in it, and I think doubled my score. It was fantastic. Um, and I've also got them into Splendor, uh, so I've been playing that. I played I think like you know ten games of Splendor in the past two weeks with people. They're really big fans of that game. I'm gonna try and get them into Viceroy, which is kind of like Splendor on steroids. It's been called it's a similar thing, but just more complex scoring. Uh, we'll see if I can get them mm -hmm. to do that. What have you been playing? What's been going on with you? 
Oh, a bunch of things. Uh, speaking of Dungeon Roll, have you heard about the uh, new game that TMG is putting out, sort of like the sequel to Dungeon Roll, Dungeon of Fortune? I did hear about that. I saw Rado did a run-through of it online, mm-hmm. and it That's looked right. interesting. Um, as I recall, it didn't use dice. It just used tokens, I think. Right, um, right. The way that one, the way that one works is uh, the the randomness in Dungeon Roll for those who aren't familiar with it, is that you have a certain amount of dice that you start out each game. And so the amount of dice you get is is uh, is set. You're going to get a certain amount of dice, and then you'll roll, and you may get to use some extra powers of your heroes, depending upon what level your hero is at. But the amount of dice you have is set, and your luck depends upon what it is that you roll with your dice and how well your dice match the random dice that the dungeon rolls because each turn the dungeon will roll its set of dice and the amount of dice it rolls steadily increases so you're pushing your luck about whether or not you'll have dice that'll match what the dungeon rolls at you so it's the all the randomness is based upon whether or not your dice that you rolled randomly match the random die roll of the dungeon but in dungeon of fortune Instead, there's no dice involved. Instead, it's a card draw each time that determines your luck. So the way that one works is based upon your level determines which hero tokens you get. So because you're at level one, for example, you may get two fighters, a cleric, and a rogue, just for an example. And there's no luck involved there. Every time you're at level one, you get that. Now you can try and level up and change what you get. You may get some more wild heroes or something like that. Um, but there's no luck involved in what you get there. Instead, you're flipping cards from the dungeon deck and seeing... So the dungeon deck will throw at you, well, maybe you need to kill two uh, skeletons, for example. And if you still have a cleric or a wild hero left, so then you can go and beat those skeletons. So all the randomness is involved in the uh, cards instead of in the dice. Right. I remember hearing about this, and I remember reading that there was a steel mechanic with um with Dungeons of Fortune where you can steal tokens mm-hmm. from one other person. And after watching a couple of videos with it, it made me think that it might be better as a uh, multiplayer game than Dungeon Roll, but I think that Dungeon Roll will probably still be a better solo play- game than Dungeon of Fortune would be. Uh, partly because of the dice and partly because there's less of a mechanic. It's straight about the numbers and pushing your luck with Dungeon Roll. Whereas there's more interaction with Dungeon of Fortune, which is what I think they were going for. Well, I think that I uh, actually emailed and spoke with Michael Mendez, who is the uh, head of Tasty Minstrel Games, which is the publisher for publishing both Dungeon Roll and Dungeon of Fortune, about whether or not Dungeon of Fortune was intended to be soloable, or whether or not it can be soloed easily. And so his response was that you could solo Dungeon of Fortune and just give yourself a time limit and see how much you can score in that one. But the trick of it is, is in Dungeon of in Dungeon Roll, um, you have a certain amount of times that you get to go into the dungeon. And after that amount of times, so then that's it, game over, and whoever has the most points wins. Whereas in Dungeon of Fortune, you're racing everyone else to be the first to get to, I think it's seven points. Um, and whoever gets that first wins. So in that case, you're not there's there's no time limit imposed by the game, and there's also a lot more interactivity with Dungeon of Fortune because yeah, like you said, you can steal the other players' points or steal the other players' potions or scrolls 
or otherwise interfere with them or throw other stuff in their way or all sorts of all sorts of stuff you can mess with them about and all of that um all of that drama all of that tension gets missed out on the solo game so while you could play it i mean just from looking at it personally i just don't recommend it and i don't think i don't think michael mendes was giving it a strong recommendation as a solo game either yeah i i think that that's probably the case i think that people should view them as games that will fill entirely different separate niches within their collection rather than an extension or a 2.0 version of mm-hmm. one type of game if that makes sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's right but yeah two other things that actually just came out me which are sort of news in themselves um so the first piece of news is uh between two cities has just been released by stone games and this is something that I initially backed with uh, back in Kickstarter. And um, it's just not coming out, and soon it's going to be available for uh, retail. And Between Two Cities is an interesting little drafting game where normally, if you're familiar with drafting games like Seven Wonders or things like that, the way uh, it normally works is you draft up your own area. You're drafting up your own city or your own space station, for example. But in Between Two Cities, you're actually drafting up a city on your left and a city on your right. And both on your right and left, you're actually in partnership with your players to your left and right. And so both of you, each game, will draft two tiles to the city that's in between you. Each turn, you'll draft two tiles between you to the city that's in between you, and you'll coordinate with them well which two tiles do you want to put out here which how do we want to arrange this how do we want to work it and so you can talk and you can say things like we should really go heavy on this and this city and get a lot of points here and it requires a lot of communication and partnership with the players next to you but you don't want to be too friendly because in the end this is competitive and your points is your lowest scoring of your two cities that you're working on so you want both of your cities to be higher, but at the same time, you don't want anyone else, any of your partners, you want to make sure that they're putting all their efforts into the cities you're partnering with and not their other cities so that their other cities are the lower scoring ones. So it's a, it, it, it really is very, uh, very unique to do where you're having to work that. Yeah, that does sound really interesting. I can see how that would be a unique little puzzle of trying to support one and not the other and seeing how that balance would work. Um, I would be curious to see how that shakes out. That's interesting stuff. It's I, I have played it already a couple of times, and it's it's. I, I thought it would be lighter because the complexity of the tiles is not very high. Um, so I thought it would be a lighter game. But the fact that you're having to think about how you're partnering and what information you're sharing and what you're saying makes it so that even though in terms of mechanics it's lighter in terms of play you have to really think about it and the way it works for solo because this is a solo uh, this game has a good solo variant um if you're familiar with morden Pedersen, who previously appeared on this podcast he released an atama deck and you can play either with the base game where there's no atama deck so there's no programming in which case it's the the solo ais are completely random or you can do the Otama deck, which means that the AIs are going to try and focus on specific things and try and react more like a person would by using that uh, that Otama deck. So, for example, the Otama deck, you'll flip it up and it'll say, for example, oh, the Otama wants to get heavy factories for a while. So it wants to start pulling more factories. 
And so it'll want the, the automata won't be completely random, but it'll actually try and get a good strategy and be intelligent about it. That's interesting. Is it kind of like the solo play with Star Realms? If you've ever played that, where you have yes. certain cards that say, okay, they're focusing on the Trade Federation this time, or they're focusing on you know the Imperial set where they're trying to make more money every turn. Uh, that sort of material it sounds very similar. So, but this one it's it's very short term because. Uh, each turn they'll flip over another card and they'll they'll choose what to focus with on that draft based upon that. But you're still having to sort of work together with these two systems to figure out, well, how can I work it out so that I'm working together to get the most points I can with them and have them work together with me based upon what it is that they're doing. At the same time, the city that they're working, I will score higher than their city on both of my two cities. And so you still you don't get that idea of working with a real person, but you still get all the strategy of the drafting, which is still a good amount of fun. Very cool, very cool. I'll so check it out. We may do that. We may do that for another full review at another point in time. Um, and then the other game that I just got a got a hold of, which is also coming out to retail, is Tiny Epic Galaxies. Sure. How have you played that yet? I mean, I've I've played Tiny Epic Kingdoms. I have not played Tiny Epic Defender, but I've heard that there's been a lot of really positive buzz for Tiny Epic Galaxies, and people have been really enjoying the dice mechanic work with that game. What are your thoughts about it? Well, I've, I'm not sure if I'm going to say it's my favorite one. So for Tiny Epic Galaxies, the way it works is uh, every turn you get a set of dice, and you roll the dice, and you get a free reroll also, and you can spend energy to reroll, so you're not totally stuck on the luck of the dice. But each of the die faces is a different action that you can take. And you're using those dice to take different actions to colonize planets or upgrade your galaxy. And whoever gets the most points by the end of the game is going to win. Um, and so you send your ships all around the galaxy and colonize and get extra powers and things like that. Um, and it does come with a solo game inbuilt that on the back of each of the player mats is a different solo pl- uh, solo AI which will also, it'll run around the galaxy and essentially it, it has some more underhanded dirty tricks. So it'll steal stuff from you or, or make your ships go back on the colonization tracks. Um, and it, it just, it plays mean and dirty. <laughs> the solo AI plays mean and dirty. Is it a different solo AI for each one? For the back of each different player, there's a different solo AI? Because that's really interesting if that's true. Yeah, each one is a different difficulty of solo AI. It starts with easy to epic, which is very hard. Right. Um, and I have not yet beat epic. Um, but each one of them is so it's they, they all have the same general idea. They're all rogue galaxies that will uh, they start out with all of their ships and they're running around and using all of their ships to colonize as fast as possible and get a lot of points without using any special abilities. And then if you roll one of the die faces, so then it'll use all of its underhanded dirty tricks against you, and you want to try and avoid that. So each of those really, it's a different difficulty of the same type of AI. They're all different, but it's the same type of AI. But the, the, you can actually print out the, the designer and publisher of the game created a set of printable AIs, um, each of which is very different, each of which plays very differently. So like one is designed to focus on a strategy to take away all your resources. And another one is designed to try and do war against you. And so each one of those plays differently. That's very cool. Yeah. I thought it was very nice that they added those in those solo, the, the solo AI. 
Definitely. So I haven't had a chance to play those extra special AIs yet, but I hope to soon. Okay. Have you taught anybody the game? Have you played with anybody else, or is it most of them solo so far? I have played a couple games of it, uh, at both with my wife and at my game group. Um, and it's gone, it's gone over pretty well. Um, I don't know for me personally whether or not I like it. I think I like it more than Tiny Epic Kingdoms. I'm not sure. Um, I definitely like it more than Tiny Epic Defenders. I was not, I was not a big fan of Tiny Epic Defenders. Um, but, uh, so I, it's definitely a pretty good game. Um, and I definitely like the, the dice one mechanic. I think it's definitely easier to get into than Tiny Epic Kingdoms. Very cool. Yeah. I, I think that dice, by the fact that they're so physical, are always more entertaining and appealing to people. So kind of getting into that, I think will be, will, will serve it well in the future. Mm-hmm. Have you had a chance to play this one yet? yet? I haven't. I haven't. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to. Uh, I haven't bought it personally, and so I haven't seen it yet. I've, I've seen it, you know, in videos, but I haven't laid my hands on it yet. But it looks interesting. Mm-hmm. It looks interesting. So we'll see how it does. Okay, very cool. And so I guess that was the first two pieces of news. There's only one other piece of news that we can report on, and uh, I think that you're probably actually kind of familiar with it already. No. Um, are we talking about Seventh Continent? I assume. No, we're talking about Essen. Oh, Essen. Well, Essen, I am familiar with Essen, definitely. Uh, everybody loves Germany and board games. Um, so, yeah, Essen, is, it's a very big convention. It's on you know the worldwide scale of board game conventions happening this weekend in Essen, Germany. And I'm sure that there's going to be plenty of people there right now um, playing board games, reviewing board games, trying out all their board games and selling board games. So... I hear there's a lot of buzz coming out of it uh, with the Bloody Inn, which I don't know that much about, but I know it's crossed my radar. I know that Mysterium's out there, um, and Pandemic Legacy, which I, is very interesting to me. Pandemic is a very well-known game of uh, cooperative trying to save the world from disease, and what they've basically done is created a legacy version where your games have repercussions for later games, and you have a built-in campaign that goes for, I think, 12 different games. Each game is considered a month in this year of disease. Uh, and it looks really interesting. So I will be very excited to lay my hands on that at some point in the future. Uh, and we'll see how it goes. So that's Essen, I guess, is the, the big news in the gaming world. Yep. And regarding Pandemic Legacy, I believe that it can actually be soloed. Um, I don't, to my knowledge, and I don't know any specific spoilers and i have not spoken with rob davio or matt laycock about it uh, and maybe i should before i say anything further but i believe that you can't actually solo all the way through pandemic legacy i assume that you would note to self ask either rob or matt Dav- more matt laycock whether you can solo pandemic legacy <laughs> we'll get back to you on that I, one. yeah we'll have to get back to it my gut says again without having talked to either one of them my gut says that they would probably say yes you could but that the game will lose some of its, you know, flair if you don't have other people going through that shared sense of chaos in the long term. Well, I know that we've had Matt Laycock appear on before, right? and Rob Davio's other games, I believe, are not solo friendly. Uh, so I have not had him appear on. But with Matt Laycock, no, I mean he actually has played all of his games solo. He playtests them solo, and he definitely appreciates playing each of them solo. Starting from, you know, Forbidden Desert, Forbidden Island to Pandemic to any of his newer games, 
uh, including also one that's coming out soon, another one, Thunderbirds. Yep. So all of these can be played solo, are designed to play to be played solo also and be just as much fun. The The trick of it becomes, I know that with, uh, well, there is the possibility that with a legacy game, at one point in time, it could set you up that, I don't know, someone's a traitor or you can't share information or something happens. And I'm not saying whether or not such things happen in any other legacy games because every other legacy game I know of is co- is competitive. Right. And so whether or not that exists anything else is fine. But is that happening in Pandemic Legacy? Who knows? I hadn't considered that at all. I hadn't even thought about the idea that there might be some sort of um, betrayer or you know hidden spy mechanic or whatever it might be hidden within the depths of Pandemic Legacy. That's an interesting thought. I'm not sure. Yeah. No no clue. You have no idea what's coming out of That's that. That's very true. That's you very have true. No clue. So I should really just potentially email him and ask and we'll get back to you guys. Absolutely. Or I'll tell you once I'm finished through uh, once I finish through the campaign yeah. myself. I'm hoping That'd I'll be, be able to get a group started with it over here. We'll see. We will see. All right, so uh I think almost as is normal, we don't have very much for news. <laughs> well, you know, we, we do what we can. Some weeks are better than others. Especially yeah. without Albert here. Anyway, so so uh, I guess we're going to move on to some new Kickstarter games that are coming up. So first I want to talk about a Spirit Island, which is a cooperative settler destruction strategy game, which is coming from Greater Than Games. And unfortunately, at the time of recording, this one is going to be finishing up on October 16th. So you may not have very much time to go back it. So if you're interested, go back it quickly. Otherwise, I fully expect that this one is going to be coming out to um, to retail eventually, and you can probably pick it up then. But the way this game works is your um, play it's it plays one to four players and each player is a spirit of the land and the number of players the way it scales is the island is actually split up into four sections and however many players there are is how many sections of the board come out so if you only have one player if you're playing solo only one section of the island comes out and so it scales very nicely down to one player all the way up to four which i thought was a good way of doing it and the idea of the game is that you are a spirit and you place down your presence. You control the various islands. And the invaders, the NPCs of the game, are trying to control their areas of the island. And so they're going around and they're placing out explorers and, temp- and cities and settlements and then eventually blight. And they're working to destroy the land and excise the natives so that they can fully colonize this wild uncharted island. And so you as a spirit of the island, so you, you'll go and you'll place your uh, abilities, you'll place your presence on the islands and you'll use special powers of, that are from your cards and move them around and destroy them and push them around. Um, game looks very interesting to me. Uh, it definitely, it, it appears to be, there's definitely a lot of bits that go on the board at, board at once. 
um, if you're looking at the picture of the games, like even you look at the, the picture from the Spirit Island gameplay video, just a little thumbnail, and you can just sort of get a sense of the amount of pieces that will come out of the board at once. Sure. I mean, it definitely, it definitely looks very, very polished of a game. And a lot of bits, a lot of high-quality art. Um, very, very pretty to look at. But, yeah, a lot, a lot going on at once. Yeah, so, but I definitely think there's a lot of bits that are going on here. So there's a lot to be balancing and running with in the game, which is, I mean, that's okay. Would you call this an area control game or a worker placement type game? This is this is more of an area control game because you're trying to send your presence around to control the various places. And the more control you have in an area, the more your cards will be able to activate in those areas and drive away the bad guys because the bad guys are trying to control areas to increase their power and do more damage to the natives on the island. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Just off the top of my head, it looks like El Grande. I haven't really looked at this much, so I don't know a lot about Spirit Island. I'm just looking at that still uh, of in the gameplay video and how it looks. And, and my gut reaction was, oh, this looks kind of similar to El Grande, so which is another game that I'm really interested in. So could be i mean yeah i definitely i also like the art each one of these spirits has a different art piece um and i think the spirits names is interesting like oceans hungry grasp and lightning swift strike and vital strength of the earth they, they definitely have a, a set of interesting names for these things sure thunder speaker very poetic start of stuff i like it mm-hmm. and so in order to get the base game it's 49 dollars, and i you know if you missed it it's okay because i think that you only missed the single the the one promo um, the spirit, the serpent slumbering beneath the islands. But I think everything else is, uh, it's not Kickstarter exclusive and I think it's all upgrading the base box. So very cool. Oh yeah. That, that is very cool. So that gives people mm-hmm. a chance if you missed out on it, hopefully you'll still be able to get all this really good stuff that they've, they're blowing through their, their, uh, yeah, I think, goals. I think, I think all, of, I think all of the stretch goals are going to be upgraded to the base box. I do believe. I would imagine so. I feel like that's generally the case for this type of work, and it seems like they've got a lot of, of uh, resources, and they're already past their their stretch goal. Some of their stretch goals, anyway. So I think that that would be the case. Oh no! Actually, the two there there are two. Uh, there's a mini expansion and another promo that's part of the stretch goals that aren't going to be coming out. But otherwise. But anyway, yeah, so if you're looking for it, like I said, it's uh, going to be finishing October 16th, and it's $49 to get a copy of the game. All right, next one I want to talk about is The Seventh Continent, and this one's, you got a little bit more time to do. Uh, it's finishing October 27th, and have you heard of The Seventh Continent yet? I have heard of The Seventh Continent. It looked really interesting. I'm very interested in these kind of storytelling games where you're kind of choosing your own adventure in a sort of way. A little bit like Above and Below, a little bit like um, Tales of the Arabian Nights. So that was fascinating to me. And basically, the Seventh Continent, from what I've seen, and you can check it out on the Kickstarter page, um, it just has a huge amount of money, so it's definitely become widely available, I would imagine, is uh, basically it's your own adventure with a massive deck of cards. We're flipping over cards and exploring this island. And each card has this different area that you're going to, so you're walking along a path, suddenly you approach a cliff and so after you climb down the cliff you're at an ocean and there you find an empty vessel an empty ship um and experiencing all these different encounters uh so i think that's really interesting but i haven't looked further into 
the nitty-gritty details of the play. So maybe you know a little bit more about that than I do. Well, I wouldn't really recommend looking too much in the nitty-gritty details of the play because that may ruin it for you. Um, but I know that they're working on making a print-and-play that's going to be available if you want to give a try to the demo version of the game. Unfortunately, I haven't had a chance. I haven't been given access to it, and I haven't had a chance to play it myself. Hopefully, I will get a chance to get access to it. Um, but yeah, like you were saying, with the idea of the game is that you'll have an action deck. And the action deck is both your energy and your points. And now then, most of our listeners are probably going to be familiar with this game because we did have an interview a couple episodes ago um, where we interviewed the designer of the game and talked about the game in, in detail. But yeah, I'm bringing it up again because it's now live and it's available. And so if you want to pick it up now, now's your chance. Um, and if you're looking for it, so $59 will get you the base game. And then, I'm sorry, 59 euros, $66 will get you the base game. And then about $100 will get you the base game plus the three expansions and anything else special that comes with it. And I know that currently the the original game, if you get on Kickstarter, so it comes with four minis for the explorers and four minis for the fire, for the camp tokens, which are just these little fire pieces. And I think that they've unlocked an extra three minis also that are coming with it and just a whole bucket load of cards. So, uh, you know, they're at more than, I think they're at over a thousand cards with the higher rate one and more than 800 or something cards with the lower rate one, just a whole bucket load of cards, which is probably why it's a somewhat expensive game because there's a ton of cards in this game. Right. I also remember hearing that this had a unique system for saving the progress of the game, packing it up and then being able to unload it and start right back where you were and that seems like a really fascinating thing, given just how massive this is. It's literally a thousand cards, so you're not going to be able to run through this in one sitting. And the ability to, you know, save and load games, so to speak, is really fascinating to me. I don't really know how that works exactly, but it seems cool. Well, the way it works is, um, you 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 can only do it if all of your adventurers are on the same map tile. And so you'll just pack up that one map tile and everything else you'll put back in the box. All of the other map tiles will put back in the box. Um, you'll pack up your action deck and your discard deck and put these special cards to mark. This is the action deck. This is the discard deck you put back in the box. You pack up your hand and you put that back in the box. You pack up your items, you put that back in the box. And you put your figures away. And that's really all it is. Is because once you have those cards that mark where everything is, you pack it up all in a stack and you put it in the box and there it is, you're done. It doesn't allow you to to save the entire map. So when you come back next time, your map won't be built like it previously was. And I've heard some people who are complaining about that. I personally feel that there's no re- there's no need to complain. Some as if you need to re-explore, so some of the events you'll have to redo events because each time you re-explore a new place, you have to do a new event. Some of the events are good, some of the events are bad. So you're not going to be losing by going exploring the events. Some of them are going to be doing good for you. But additionally, usually you'll be proceeding on forward through the island and meeting new things and going and, and going to new places instead of having to re-explore. So I think some total, I think that it seems like it's a really good way of doing the system. I would agree. I think that you can't really expect them to develop a system in which you're saving the state of 50 or 100 or 150 cards in the exact same order every time I'm managing to make that work. And I also think it kind of makes sense a little bit thematically where you're, you're exploring this kind of mystical 
seventh continent where anything can kind of happen, that suddenly the mist will sweep over part of the board and you won't be able to remember, you won't be able to get back to it. You kind of create that thematic experience as well. So it ties together, mm-hmm. I feel like. Yeah, I think so. Because I think that it's, it's very much an exploration and I'm fine with, I'm fine with it being like sure. that. It just seems like a very fun way of doing that. But I'm sure this this is one I'm definitely going to be getting. I'm definitely going to be running through this one. And, you know, hopefully I'll be able to give you guys a full review once it comes out. Unfortunately, it's going to take a whole other year or something to come out. I don't think the, the expected release date is not until, I think, October. Yeah. October of 2016. Wow. That is a long way away, though. But if you're into this, yeah, I think that it, it would... It, for a lot of people, I think that it would definitely be worth it. I think that this will... will strike a lot of people's interests and a lot of people will get it'll spark a lot of imagination just because it's so kind of free-flowing in that way it really is choose your own way you want to go so that's the seventh continent and this one's going to be ending on october 27th and again base game is 66 dollars, and with all the expansions it's a hundred dollars all right so the next one i'm talking about i'm not as familiar with it's called folklore the affliction and this one's gonna be ending on october 27th one day later um, and so this one is a uh, cooperative role-playing fan- dark fantasy game for one to five players um, where you are adventuring around and being defenders against the demons and witches and vampires and you know, all those various folklore. And uh, people have probably heard my opinions on, on this sort of stuff. It's a minis game. It comes with a bunch of minis, and they are very proud that they have a bunch of minis. With the core game, it's already at $95 just for the core game, and the reason is because it comes with 48, admittedly, very nice minis. But it's a minis game, which is usually a whole bunch of expense. (laughs) Generally speaking, that's true. Uh, A lot of minis games tend to market themselves as being mini games first and foremost, and then you know adventure games or action games or whatever else games secondly from what I've seen. So, you know, take that as it is. Well, I mean, minis definitely do bring something to the table, but for me, it's just usually not worth the extra cost. I'm normally quite happy with standees for the cost to play the game. Right. And, you know, speaking of cost, this is $95 for, uh, you know, Folklore the Affiction just at the base level with the core game and the stretch goals. It's $95. So that's, expensive to put down for again another game that's only coming out in a year from now so so i'm not so familiar with this one because unfortunately minis but if you're interested in minis and you're interested in a dark fantasy cooperative game so the way the game looks like it's it looks like your your grid um encounter weapons basis to me it looks sort of like a a a, a pathfinder or a dungeons dragons sort of system where you essentially have minis on a grid and you march forward and compare attributes to determine what dice you have and roll and fight and so it it looks very much in that category to me i'm getting that vibe as well i think that it's definitely takes its cues from that you know history of those types of games of your pathfinder of your dungeons and dragons of your you know grid-based exploration and adventure and combat sort of systems um, so I think that that's their inspiration, and it's a great world. If, if that's if if you loved playing that sort of thing, if you loved playing, you know, D and D growing up, and you're looking for a co-op where you don't have to have uh, a a game master, you can just dive right into it with these really fantastic looking minis. You might want to check it out. 
But yeah, I think that the, the, the biggest draw that we'd have for probably someone listening to this podcast is that if you are interested in playing a role-playing game and you don't have the ability to hang out with a GM or there's no one who wants to be a dungeon master for the game. So this one, there's a whole storyline, there's a campaign, and there's enemies, and all of it is controlled by the game. And so you get very much that RPG, that, that very immersed RPG feeling without having an actual dungeon master involved. Sure. So, like I said, this is folklore the affliction and it's already more than well funded i think that each one of these is already more than well funded and it's gonna be finishing october 27th now the next one i think that you personally were very interested in this one is called wizard school i hadn't seen much about it i'm just a fan of hank green in general uh i like the vlog brothers so it when i saw that he was behind i was like oh that's interesting tell me more but in terms of the actual game mechanics or what it is from a gaming perspective i don't know anything about it so walk me through it well, in this one, you it is a cooperative card game played by, for two to five players. Now, I'm going to say two to five players. It's a cooperative game played for two to five players where you are the wizards in wizard school, and so you get to fight. Now then, this is, this is going to be trying. I think it's trying to make a joke about all the wizard school tropes. So, for example, you'll start a game and you'll pick your character, and you know each one of these are sort of a joke on the various different types of characters. So you're fighting as a teenage Medusa or a teenage witch or things like that. And so, for example, you'll get to figure out who the big bad boss is. And so, for example, your big bad boss will be, you have to fight the crack in the drywall, which is this evil-looking crack in the wall. Of course. (laughs) Naturally. And then you get to have various magic powers. And so you can summon a duocorn. Not a unicorn, it's got two horns. It's a duocorn. Or you use the $7 wand or you use these special uh, connectivity wands. They are called Wi-Fi-ify. <laughs> and so you get to use your magic tools, and you have to fight through the level of the, the, the school. And so each level of the school is going to be an encounter that you have with something on the school. And so it may be a monster, or it may be another encounter, or something that you have to do, or an option to, to, to do an event, like you could socialize or study or panic. And so you're able to go ahead and interact with those people. It does sound very cute. I, I, the art is really nice, and it's got that tongue-in-cheek sort of style of we're laughing at the, at the theme that we love so much sort of thing, um, and, and taking it and making it our own and having a little bit of fun and humor with it, which is very cute. And if you love the wizarding world and you love you know a little bit of dry sarcasm to it where you're fighting off cracks in the drywall or what have you um that that might work out for you so but the problem in in terms of being solo even though this is a a co-op game um with this one what happens is when you draw something from the school deck so you have various options for what you can do you can either deal with that one card you just got or you can deal with another monster that's already out at school, or you can try and work towards the main challenge. And um, when you're working towards the main, when you're, when you're doing any one of those things, you work with your magic spells. 
and you'll have your own hand of cards for the magic spells that each one of the magic spells will be better or worse against a specific enemy. So you may want to have a bunch of magic that are good for this enemy, but unfortunately, you don't have all those things in your hand. So you'll have to trade cards with other wizards to be able to get the right cards together, or you can work with other friends or team up for an ability or various things like that. So if you're trying to play this game co-op solo, you're going to have to control multiple characters and you're going to have to be sharing hands between them. And, you know, essentially what ends up happening is you, you look at this, and you're like, well, why don't I just play two players and we'll have a completely shared hand. And, you know, it sort of starts defeating some of the mechanics of the game when you try and play the game solo. And I did actually email the publishers, the, the Kickstarter people behind this one. And they said that they um, are very likely to um, create some single player rules for it, a, a special set of single player rules for the game sometime in the future. Probably not going to be part of this Kickstarter, unfortunately. So, no, unfortunately not. But at least they said that it's coming, which is nice. That's a little bit of an encouragement, even though it's kind of they, vague. Well, well. well. They they didn't they didn't say it is coming, they said Maybe. it's pretty it's it's very likely it's going right. to come. But they make no, they're not making any promises, and I think that unless those do come out, I it doesn't look like the sort of thing that I would recommend. I've never played it, so I can't say whether or not it actually does play poorly solo. But to me, it looks like when you're having to manage two hands and also trade between those two hands and interact between those two hands. That just doesn't seem like it's going to be the sort of thing that's going to be an enjoyable play to play. Somewhere. Yeah, on the surface of it, it does sound like it's a lot of things to juggle and you just don't have enough hands for it, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I haven't dug deep into it, so that might end, not end up being the case. So that's that one. But I mean, if you're interested in looking into it more, this one is going to be finishing up on October 29th. And uh, it's $20 for one copy. For the base copy. And there's also an expansion that's there as well that you can pick up for an extra $15. So if you like expansions when you're getting your games, that's available too. Yeah, the the adult expansion. Whatever that means, adult yes, expansion. the Dirty Little Secrets. Not sure what that is other than it's not safe for kids. Uh, be advised. Who knows? What that means is we're trying to be edgy because after all, we did it for... Um, Exploding kittens or whatever. Oh, exploding kittens! Yes, that's really that's really that's really what they're trying to. I, I think that's what they're trying to be like. Like they did it, we could do that too. I'm like, what? maybe I'm not sure. Anyway, so that's Wizard School. Next one, last one I want to talk about is Scythe, and I was speaking earlier about a new Stonemaier game that I just got. Uh, this is Stonemaier's next game that's coming out, and it's coming out on Kickstarter, and it's going to be finishing up uh, at one point in time. At some point in the distant future. We're not sure when and where, but we'll let you know. At some point in the distant future. Let me go ahead in just a moment. I, I've all, I mean, I'm a big fan of their work. Euphoria has definitely uh, appealed to me for quite a long time now, although I haven't had a chance to play it just because I love the theme, and Viticulture, another game from that publisher has gotten rave reviews pretty much across the line from what I've seen. So mm -hmm. they've got a bit of a pedigree to them, to be sure. They, they definitely make some awesome things. And I think that the amount of stuff they're going to be throwing in this one is just... The the bits are, are in my opinion, incredible. 
Really? They've packed it to the gills, huh? That's that's fantastic. Yeah. And honestly, it's really nice. And to me, I mean, I look at this and I'd be like, this is $59 for all the stuff that comes in it. Uh, it, it comes with it comes with a set of cards. It comes with 12 factory cards, 20 objective cards, 20 counter cards. And those encounters are all unique art. And you look at them and the encounters describe what's happening in the world. The, the, the idea of this world is it's set in an alt history 1920s where you know it's it's people are just starting to create industry except that they decide to make giant mechs and if you see like in the in the background distance of the game so you have these peasants who are working you know with old style tools but in the in the distant background you see these huge overtowering mechs working in the field and so that dichotomy is really what this game is all about that that balance between the huge giant mechs and your farmer workers working in your place so all of this art that comes into it just looks very nice. It also comes with four different sets of unique of shaped meeples for the resources. There's shaped food tokens, metal tokens, oil tokens, and wood tokens. It also comes with, for each faction, it comes with uh, cardboard star tokens, wooden worker meeples, which are shaped meeples, wooden hearts for popularity, wooden power tokens, four different types of structure tokens, uh, 20 different recruit tokens, and then cubes. <laughs> and then also some minis, it looks like, here as well. And, each, and the game comes with, tw- with uh, 25 minis. There's five factions, and each faction comes with a set of a character and an animal companion mini. So you have these these very pretty minis. Like uh, each faction is set in one of the nations of the world. So you know you have Polanya, which is the the guy, the girl, and the bear. Sure. And you have the Saxons, which is this guy and the wolf. And these minis just look really cool. And it also comes with four mechs. And they're these robots that are supposed to be sort of styled towards your type of background history for the the area that you're working at. So each mech looks different. It's colored to be your faction, but each mech looks different. So this is five different sculpts that are involved in it. And the idea of the game is that, like I said, you're you're balancing between... Imagine you took, uh, if you're familiar with Kemet and Agricola almost. You sort of are smooshing these two two type of things in together with each. That you're, the, the way it works is that you are, um, you know, with Agricola, when you get a, 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 with when you get resources, so then you use those resources to build, and so it's there. But with this one, everything sort of becomes a little bit more real. You get resources and you transport them back to your area and they get held on the board until you use them and they can be sacked and attacked by other players' armies. And then they'll you can use your mech to work in the fields and get resources or you can use your mech to attack everyone else. And it's this is this is not a die roll type of attack either. This is, like in Kemet, it's deterministic. You're playing attack cards to determine your power and what that you're doing and you also will be upgrading and just the amount of stuff that they're throwing into this game just blows the mind yeah it certainly seems like there's just 
so much going on at once. They're juggling a lot of these different mechanics of how things are moving, how resources are being gathered, how combat is being driven, and all kinds of stuff on the board at once. It just seems like they have tried to create a, a masterwork for themselves, a Sistine Chapel in a board game, which seems like a lot of fun. I, it really, it, I, I, I'm raving about this one because I'm excited to play it. I was, uh, unfortunately, I was offered the chance to play test this one with them, and unfortunately, it the the play test was happening around the time that I was finishing up my bar, uh, preparation for the bar. So I wasn't actually able to play test it, but I really wish I had because the game looks super awesome. Yeah, it looks really, really. The, I mean, they they're tying in all of these mechanics to make something that feels very true to life about what would have happened in it. There's, it, it doesn't feel like they've extra abstracted very much and it all feels very realistic and immersive about how it would all actually be working. I can easily see that sort of thing. And I just, in general, I really like, I appreciate the genre of alternate history and kind of what would happen if, you know, in world war two, they had giant mechs that people could move around in or whatever. <laughs> so that's really cool. But speaking of playtesting as well, I see here that they've got over 100, 750, blind playtests that they've done so clearly they've they've done mm -hmm. deep they've they've worked this thing through the playtesting grinder uh over 750 that's massive in terms of being able to produce something uh that is clean cut and well finished that's right both this and for spirit island were something i was very impressed about because when you get on there and you start seeing the playtesters immediately come out and start saying, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, this was great. Yeah, this was amazing. And you hear those playtesters, you hear everyone start chatting about how much they loved it. That really helps start to bring faith in what it is that I'm hearing, what it is that I'm playing. Hearing all those playtesters just chat about it just makes me so much more confident in the value of the game. When there's so many people who are already so dedicated to it and so much like it already. Sure, I think that that definitely plays a role in it. Yeah, for both this one and for Spirit Island, seeing all those playtesters and melee out of the woodworks is just, you know, makes me know that someone's put a lot of effort into this. And of course, with Stonemaier Games, their normal thing is they do the money-back guarantee. You know, if you don't like the game, you can return it, you can open it, you can play it, and you'll be like, I just didn't like the game, can you take it back? And they will. They'll pay for return shipping, they'll give you a full refund, no questions wow. asked. You've got to appreciate that level of professionalism and confidence in their product. Yeah, Stonemaier has done awesome things. And to me, this one looks like it's going. Now that I mentioned before that they're making these automas, Morden Pedersen has put a bunch of work into this automa de into the automa deck for this one. And he's gotten a lot of, of, um, a lot of work going into playtesting and making it work well. And it's been refined down to one rulebook and 22 cards to make a nice working Automa deck. And if you've run Automa for Viticulture or now for Between Two Cities, you'll know it runs light, smooth, and makes an interesting and dynamic game when you're playing against that Automa deck. And I expect that the same thing will be true for playing Scythe. I would expect so as well. I, this seems like something that you can definitely get excited about come August of next year. Mm -hmm. And one other thing, by the way, that I thought was a very interesting thing, I'm going to just give them the kudos. Um, if you note their um, funding goals, so they have they have their stretch goals. And so the stretch goals are like, the funding goal is 33000 
but the next stretch goal is $60,966. The next one is $82,014 and so on. And if you look at that, like, wait, what? Yeah, what is the reasoning <laughs> for that? Why did they do that? Uh, the reasoning for that is that they made these. These are the day one totals for their previous projects. And so they set that their stretch goals would be how much they earned from previous projects. I assume those are approximations of the sort of stuff they'd actually need to be able to get the better tokens or better cards, what, what have you for these things. Um, but I think that was, I'm, I'm going to say hats off for excellent marketing because that makes you think of a few things. Hey, number one, we did a lot of really awesome things before. Here's how much they earned on day one for each of them. We've done a bunch of really cool things. Not only have we done a lot of really cool things, a lot of people have thought they were really cool and donated a ton of money on day one. So, you know, being able to put that forefront and make you think about we are reliable, we've done good things, and a lot of people have thought we've done good things by building that into the stretch goals was just a genius piece of marketing. Yeah, that is cute. I do like that. And again, it plays back to the level of connection that they have to their buyers to their clientele that they're so proud of their history that say here's what we've done in the past here's what people have been willing to invest in us and here's how we're going to invest back into them yeah they know they know what they are about and it is amazing all right so that's kickstarter and i think we're going to be moving on to our review for the podcast okay take it away Here we go. So the game we're going to be reviewing today is Red November. Now, uh, Red November is, I will give this, interestingly themed. <laughs> You're playing a bunch of... <laughs> I like the theme. I think it's cute. Oh, good God. Excuse me for a moment while I try and get this out with a somewhat straight face. You're playing a bunch of drunk gnomes on a submarine who have been attacked by a giant squid. And you are all trying to put out the fire... Not blow yourselves up until you get enough time to get rescued from the giant squid and escape, except that at one point in time, if you're playing multiplayer, one person can betray you and run away. That's pretty much what it sums up. However, in fairness, the gnomes don't start off drunk. They get drunk over the course of the game because they need to drink grog to make themselves stronger to go through the fire. But originally, they're sober, stout sailors of this well, Naval I just want to point out, it is. they are sober, stout sailors of the Naval Command with like 60 grogs stored on their ship. I have a sneaky suspicion, I have a sneaky suspicion they had a reason for storing that much grog on their ship, and it's because they're a bunch of drunks. They may not currently be drunk, but they are a bunch of drunks. <laughs> that, that's true, and it should go also as well that the name Red November is a play off of the book and film The Hunt for Red October, which was, you know, about a Russian submarine. So they're definitely tipping their hat to this whole Russian submarine, uh, a lot of grog drinking and a lot of, you know, the symbols are also a little bit very kind of historic Soviet sort of thing. Um, so that's kind of the, the background of that idea. But it's, I think it's I agree. a cute It thing. is cute and it's kind of funny with the tokens and things, which is why I'm laughing, but it's just, it's just a little on the crazy side. Especially these little, these little, yeah, that's the, true. the game also, well, 
let's let's talk about some of the pieces first. There are two versions of the game that I'm aware of. There's the big version and the small version. Um, and I believe that both of us have had our hands on the small version of the game. And yep, the small true. version of the game is, well, quite small. It's quite small. small. Um, which, if you're looking for something that's small to carry with you, that's great. If you're looking for something that's big and takes up a little more table space, then you probably want the bigger one. Oh, I've seen the difference in size. I mean, it's definitely, the small one is definitely significantly smaller than their larger version. And I, I think that it makes sense that they should have these two different sizes because they want to cater to those that like their pocket-type games that they can just slip in a cargo pants pocket and go and then have a cooperative game and a coffee house type of thing. And the smaller version definitely fits that niche. And then the larger version is for people that have their own massive table uh, at home. Not even massive. The regular dining room table at home. And they just want to play a game that doesn't necessarily pick up and travel on the go that is a regular mm-hmm. sized box game. So it makes sense mm-hmm. to do it That's both true. ways. So uh, just in terms of what the what the game comes with, so the game comes with the eight different colored gnome sailors because I believe this game plays up to six play it plays up to eight players in fact. Um but yes. so it comes with the different gnome sailors and you for each of those sailors so you have little timekeepers that will be going around the time of the board because the way the game plays is as as you take action, so you move forward in time. So a more difficult action would take more time. And so other players would get to take more turns to, until they catch up to you in time. It'll also come with some specific disaster markers, because as you go through time, so then various different outbreaks and things will occur on the board, and you'll show when those outbreaks occur in terms of time. It also comes with a whole pile of item tiles, and you'll pick up these item tiles and use them to fix things. It'll also come with a bunch of other tokens for hatches blocked and for floods and fires. And then it comes with a deck of event cards, and these are the bad things that are happening in the game. Um, And again, depending upon the size of the board, that'll change what it is that's coming with things. But I think that it's nice that at the very least they, they distinguish between items that you can keep and action cards that are event things that are that are cards. I think that would have been a little more confusing had the items been cards instead of tiles, although I think that might have taken, taken up a little less room in the box. Probably. I would agree. Uh, I, I think that the tiles are nicer. They're a little bit heavier. Um, and so being able to manipulate them as opposed to cards. Um, I think it's also just matter that it's a nice dichotomy. It shows clearly this is not these <laughs> because these are tiles and these is cards. Right. That's definitely true, and it does make things easier to um, point out and grab quickly because you don't have to confuse yourself about which deck am I taking from or which pile of tokens I'm taking from. It's very clearly one or the other. And so let's talk a little bit about how the game plays. So the way it works is um, there's various different ways that you can lose, as is almost typical for for a cooperative game like this. You have various disaster tracks. There's the asphyxiation track, the heat track, and the pressure track. And you'll also have your gnomes and just a random die roll because there's 10, I think there's 10 spots on the, on the ship, 10 rooms in the ship. And so random die roll will determine where it is that you go. And a lot of the game you're doing random die rolls to figure out where bad stuff happens. 
And so Randall and I will figure out where your gnome starts. And then you'll place the timekeepers on the starting spot on the time track. And whoever is closest to the beginning, so closest to 60 or furthest from rescued, so they're the one who has to take a turn. And that'll mean that sometimes you'll take turns that'll take multiple minutes. And so that means that you've taken more time to take a turn, so other players will take theoretically shorter turns until they catch up to you. So it doesn't have a rigid turn-by-turn structure. It doesn't go around the table. It's whoever is last in that time track is going to take a turn, which is a mechanic that I do like. I've seen it before in some other games like... um, Thieves, the Tomb Raiders is another one that comes to mind that has a similar mechanic. I had never seen this mechanic before, and I was really intrigued by it. I thought that was a really interesting way of making the turn order in in the sense that there isn't really an order per se. It's just whoever is slowest, whoever's furthest back on track, takes their go. And if they're still at the end of the pack, they'll go again. Um, And so... After you have done your action, then your ghost timekeeper will move on. And as you're going through it, good things and bad things will happen until the time it took you to do that action is resolved through that ghost movement. Um, i never seen that before. I thought that was a really interesting. And to me, it seemed very different than other co-ops that I was familiar with in the sense that there's not just the deck of evil or the dice rolling and seeing what luck generated out or... You know, building a, a, set, a deck and choosing one card or the other, it had that unique sort of feel to my mind. Uh, it wasn't something that I'd experienced yep, before. I definitely agree. It's definitely a unique mechanic. I haven't seen it with very many games, and it made it interesting here because the way bad stuff happens is at certain spots, segments along the track, each time you pass those spots on the track, you have to draw a bad stuff card. And the bad stuff may cause more fire to break out or water to rise or some other bad or, or a crack in attack or things like that. And so you don't want to go too fast because you don't want to hit those bad stuff card spots. But on the other hand, some of your actions do take time to finish up. So it's one of those things where, well, what, what do I do? You know? Sure. And eventually you have to hit those bad spots. There is no avoiding it. In order to complete the game, you have to run into trouble. It's all about timing. When are you least vulnerable and when do you feel safest about what trouble will occur? So it's not something that's avoidable. It's not something that you can dodge. It's just something you have to bite the bullet at some point. Whether that bullet is an accidental, you know, sub nuclear launch then so be it it's just a really big yep. bullet you've got to and buy also, you know as a consolation prize as you do go through the time track there are some spots that you at least get to draw items from not as many as where there's bad stuff but you do get to draw items sure and those items can help you solve crisis because you'll get a manual that will allow you to fix the oxygen regulator or you'll get a you know diving suit that'll help you take out the you'll be able to swim outside and go fight the Kraken or whatever it is. So those items are, are crucial in order to solve the, the challenges you face trying to survive this sinking submarine. So I know we've discussed already about, I, I mentioned the disaster track markers, but so now that we've discussed about these timed events, this is one of the main ways 
um, that you'll end up losing the game. Because as you go through the disaster track, um, you'll at one point in time come up to the time, one of the various time destruction events. And I believe that there are four in the game, I think. Um, and so when you get yes. up to those, you must then go to whatever area it's supposed to be and fix it before all the players get to that time destruction event. And if they don't, then whatever time destruction event that is blows up the ship. So for example, there's one that you're, you're going to have a critical nuclear meltdown if you don't get to the engine and shut it down before all the players get to that. And usually you're rushing through the game and especially as water is rising and doors are getting locked, it'll take you time to get over there. And you're like, I can't get over there in enough time to be able to beat it. Yeah. So you have to rely either on other players or other figures that you're controlling if you're doing this in solo mode um, to help you out in those situations where you're stuck on the other side of the sh of the submarine and you just cannot get to that engine room or to that you know oxygen regulator room, whatever it might be, um, in time to do it, um, which is another unique aspect of the puzzle mm -hmm. that needs to be and solved. And the other way that you can lose is by having the disaster track reach all the way to the end, I believe. Yes, if the you'll have certain cards that will increase the heating or will lower the amount of oxygen that is left in the submarine, and if those tracks get to the end stage, then you will die. But you can fix those progressively throughout the game and bring them back a few steps backwards each time in order to get you back to a certain place. So if you're constantly repairing your machines, then you're safe. If you let one of those slide long enough, suddenly the entire game is lost. Yep. And so, I mean, even when you fix it, you can't, you fix it. When you do a fix, you put it back to the middle or to the beginning again, based upon where it is on there, if it's already past one or the other. So you can fix it pretty quickly, but again, you have to get back over there. And as you're trying to reach back over there, things just continue to get worse and worse and worse. Yep. Sadly, that is the case. And then also, you can actually kill gnomes in this game. Yes, there is player elimination in that regard, or, or gnomes that will die if you're going solo. Your, your gnomes can get killed, and you can try and kill other people, in a sense, in some regard, by abandoning them or by abandoning the sub. Um, but thankfully, they did write in a way of avoiding that where, you know, if, if your uh, figure dies, if your gnome dies, then you can start controlling another one that will suddenly wake up on the ship somewhere else. That avoids the player elimination aspect to it if you're playing with multiple people. If you're playing with uh, on a solo mode, then it's less of a concern. Well, I think that even with the solo mode, I, I personally found it frustrating when my guys would die and I would lose control of them. I just didn't... I, I mean, I played it both with and without that variant, and that variant is, is part of the rules. It's part of the rules about whether or not you can play um, with player elimination where there's permanent death or not. I didn't like it so much with a permanent death. I prefer to have your, your guys come back. I mean, one of my favorite uh, co-op co games is really Flashpoint Fire Rescue. And when, uh, f you know, unless you're playing with one of the variants, when a firefighter goes down, they just, you know, magically teleport over to the ambulance. I'm, you know, to me, that was just a more fun way of doing it. And as long as it's a variant of the rules, I'm happy with it. I agree completely. I am not a very big fan of player elimination, elimination games in general especially in terms of co-ops where this player elimination game. Um, so having that option available to me makes the game stronger as a whole. Mm -hmm. 
Yep, that's that's definitely my feelings on the matter. So I don't play, you know, to me, I don't play with the everyone loses lose because your gnomes do come back. Um, sure. Playing that way, you just lose all your items, and it's not such a big deal. So now that so while you so we've talked about this time track and the various ways you can lose because of the time track. So let's talk about the sort of things that you can do and the sort of things that are going to be stopping you. The the sort of things. Well, first you have to move around the ship because there's water that's going to be coming in everywhere as you're doing this. You have to. There's going to be hatches that are going to be holding back water or fire things like that. And as you move through a space, just opening up a hatch costs you already one minute of time just to open it up. And as soon as you open up a hatch, water will reflow around. And, you know, you might be moving from high water to, to low water and moving that around or putting out a fire, but you have to control which places you open and how much time it is that you can do that. Um, also, you know, you may get yourself into trouble if you walk into a place that's already at low water and then you get a water, uh, in, you get in more water in the room that you're stuck in. You, well, that may be the death of your gnome. Yeah. Um, but that's the, that's one of the main actions that you do is to move. Um, but so you move and then you get to take one action. So an action could be to unblock a hatch because the, the bad deck will block up some of the hatches, uh, put lock tokens on them. The, the bad deck will put fires in the various rooms. And so you can try and extinguish the fire. The bad deck will put water in the rooms. And so you can try and pump out the water. The bad deck will try and make the asphyxiation, heat, or pressure disaster tracks go up. And so you can fix those. Uh, you can fix the time destruction events, or you can get items or trade items. Um, and so these items will help make things more successful. Now then, the way you be successful at all these things, whenever you're doing a fix thing, um, you get to think about how many minutes you want to take doing it. And you can spend from one to ten minutes to do it. And then you roll a die. If the die is less than or equal to any time you took or any modifiers, and I'll get to the modifiers in a second, um, any modifiers, then you succeeded. Otherwise, you failed. So you want to be balancing how much time you spend. So if you're up to one, and like, for example, the time destruction events, and you're like, well, I have one minute left to solve this time destruction token. I need to do it right now. And you can spend the full 10 minutes to fix the time destruction token and make double sure that it's going to fix. But it'll take you 10 minutes. And in those 10 minutes, three other bad things might have happened. So you have to balance well how many minutes you want to spend on a problem versus how sure do you want to be. <clears throat> now, I mentioned modifiers. And these modifiers typically come from items. And the items will help you with various different things. So, for example, there's a water pump, which will give you an extra plus four um, or minus four, whichever way you think about it. But it'll give you an extra plus four as if you spent an extra four minutes on the pump water action or one that's linked to there's a fire extinguisher. And so there's various different things that will help modify your actions for the various fixes. And so then you don't have to spend as much time to be as successful. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, yeah. And so after you've taken your action, the next thing you'll do is you can check to faint. Um, you one of the type of things you can the one of the type of tiles is grog, and we mentioned grog before. 
uh, grog can help give you it's it's sort of like a wild card it can help give you uh a, a better modifier for many different things and it can also help you go into a room that's on fire and so grog is a nice all-purpose card but unfortunately the more grog you take the more drunk you get um and what happens is when after you've taken grog you have to draw another event card and if that event card is has a faint number that that is less than or equal to your current intoxication level of your gnome so your gnome's going to faint and you lose 10 minutes until he gets back up again so once again this is a balance well do you want to use the grog and run that risk do you need to run the risk is it crucial for you to run the risk and you have to balance all of that out And so that's the basic action of the game. So after you've done all that, you'll then, like I said, you'll then at that point in time, you'll take the uh, the bad cards and the good cards, update your time, and move on through the game. And each player is going to take a turn moving and taking actions. As you move through the game, you'll get around towards the end. And if you make it with all of your guys getting up to the, all the way to the rescued spot on the time track without blowing up your ship in various different ways, you've won the game. Which, by the way, the rescue track ends at 60 minutes in-game. So that's as far as you need to get, and you have to balance all of your different tasks if you wanted to, you know, like you said, gamble 10 minutes to make sure that you complete a task. Well, then you really only can do that six times before you, you know, either complete the game or run out of time. So there's this constant balance between getting to that 60-minute mark, but trying to, you know, plan accordingly and having every minute count. This game really is time management the game trying to be able to get all of that stuff to go so all right so saying that what do you think about the game did you like this one i really liked it i thought that it was interesting i thought that it had a lot of personality for a game and it was something that i hadn't really seen before i thought that it might have been a little bit too um as a solo game i thought it was great as a co-op game for other people, I think that it might have been a little bit too intimidating. I think that people were trying to get a little bit confused with the time track and trying to make that stuff uh, make sense in their head, and it wasn't quite as simple as, okay, flip over a card to see what bad stuff happens, move to this spot, remove a cube from the board, or whatever it might be. Uh, so I feel like because of the, not, the, the fact that it was different, uh, it, it was not quite as simple so I would consider it to be a gateway co-op game. But as a solo player, I thought that it was it was a lot of fun. Um, I well, for me, I, I kind of have the mix a mixed view on this one. The game itself seems to be pretty good. I don't really have any problems with the gameplay, other than, I mean, trying to balance your time. I'll, I'll give you, we mentioned before about that time track. That time track is a unique thing. I don't often see it um, in anywhere else. I think that the game definitely does something very unique with that time track. This is another sort of game, though, where you're really sort of stuck with the luck of what it is that you can do. So you're spending most of your time trying to manage whether or not you have good luck or, or bad luck. And, you know, you can just get frustrated. Well, I rolled all ones. I've been wasting so much time, and then I'm doing great rolls. And on the other hand, I'm wasting so much time, and I'm doing horrible rolls. Like, each time you, you try and balance it off, and you're trying to always do a six or a seven. And each time you roll a ten. And you're like, man, I just can't do it. 
and it's yeah, I would agree. It's very. I think very there's a lot of luck there. It's very very lucky. Yeah, go on. Not just in terms of the die that you're talking about that affects every action that you try to make, but also in terms of the tokens that you'll receive where these things just might not help you at all because you're stuck trying to fix the, the you know oxygen machine throughout the entire game and all you are getting are things that fix the engines. Um, so you can't really manage to get that to work for you. Or with the deck itself of you know the bad stuff that happens in this deck that you can just get completely, um, you know, your plants can go completely awry because of the way this deck shook out where it's all fire all the time. And by the end of the game, you just don't have enough energy. You don't have enough, you know, time left to keep putting out all of these fires. Um, and as a result, you get asphyxiated. So because of that, there's a lot of different interplay. And that means that there's a lot of luck involved every turn of the game. So you can manage that luck by just always using high cards, but then you know you have to figure out well what's the next thing that can that can burn you. And I've definitely heard some people who simply say, well, then the strategy is just to make sure that you're always spending high and make sure that you're going to whatever's the biggest concern at the time, and you're just running around the board. That hasn't worked for me great. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> I haven't won that way. Um, so I've had to play lower and make sure that I have more time to go do things. So I've won. I've won. I'm not keeping track of my stats on this one about how many times I've won this one. Um, but I mean, another issue is that. Let's see here. Yeah, you were mentioning about how the rules may be more complicated for for a simple and light, easy game. I'm not sure that it's more complicated than something like Pandemic or not. I'm not sure if it is. It's more complicated than something like Forbidden Island or you know Forbidden Desert. It's more complicated than that. But I think it's probably, in my opinion, on the same complexity level as, as say, Pandemic. Um, but I think another thing that I just don't... I mean, here's one thing that bothers me is you start the game. And when you start the game, there's nothing bad on the board. There's no issues on the board. The first thing you do is always, I'm going to go get items and wait to see what bad stuff happens. Because you don't actually start with anything bad on the board. Which, which I would agree. makes the beginning of the game very very mechanical and slow. Yeah, the every every game, the game always begins inevitably. Alright, let's go get items, because we definitely need items. And there's nothing else to do. You can just either sit there and wait for bad stuff to happen, or you might as well go be productive by trying to find some items that you know will help you in the future. So there's no real variation in terms of the early steps of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, you know, it's okay. But that's not, I mean, that means that by the end of the game, things have started to heat up. By the end of the game, it's enjoyable and 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 more exciting as there's lots of bad things happening here and you're desperately trying to struggle while you're just holding on, just trying to last a couple more minutes until you can get out and just a little bit more. And so by the end of the game, it becomes more fun. And by the end of it, you're really trying to, to work hard. There's a lot of tension, but for me, just the beginning of the game, it's very mechanical and you have to keep track of what all is going on. And so I think that, you know, it's almost like I wish I could just play the end of the game multiple times and not the beginning of the game multiple times. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And it would be interesting if there was a way that you could randomly start the game with a fire in one room or a flood in another or 
the oxygen meter already at, you know, negative three or whatever it might be, uh, or the Kraken's already a couple of steps closer, something along those lines, uh, just to add a little bit of tension from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Just to get things, just to get things moving, get things up and underway. But I think that once, once you get, I mean, just, it's you know, it's almost like reading a book. <laughs> the beginning starts out slow, but once you get going with it, especially once you're like, okay, I'm going to do this action, roll the die, and quickly, and, and especially when you're playing solo and you're running from this room and running to this room and just pressing your luck and hoping, hoping, hoping that you get what you need just to last the last bit. That really gets exciting, and that really gets the blood rushing, and there's a lot built up into it. So you know. It's really hard for me, I, you know. If I were had to rate this game, I have to say the beginning of the game I rate low, the end of the game I rate high. <laughs> it's just just a difficult thing to really gauge. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, I would agree with that. Uh, I think I would rate the game pretty well. I, I think that it's above average. I certainly think that it's a fun game, uh, certainly in solo mode, um, and it's something that will, you know test your brain as you're you're running throughout the game and like i said i really enjoy the theme i think that's a really cute and it doesn't take itself so seriously uh as some games do uh and that's appreciative to me oh so from a solo perspective i think it's great from a co-op perspective i think that it's uh you have to have a gaming group already that that knows games and is aware of how co-ops work and can really understand how the time track uh would work out well uh, in order to really get the fullness of the game. It's not something that, that springs alive no matter who's playing it. It's something that you really need a, a I don't want to say veteran, but people who are aware of, of designer games. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's, uh, that's what we have to say on Red November. All right, so uh, let's talk about uh, puzzles. Okay. Well, lead on. Let's talk about puzzles. Let's talk about puzzles. What is it that... Yeah, well, let's talk about what it is that makes a puzzle game as opposed to obviously we're not talking about jigsaw puzzles here so what do you think it is that defines uh puzzle games well i guess a jigsaw game would be a puzzle also i just don't know that i consider it but like for example a while ago on the bgg store they had this game by friendman freeze called folders i don't know if you're ever aware of it but the idea of folders um and i think it's possibly still available on the bgg store just a moment uh, and the idea of folders was that you had this flat piece of paper and it was a maze and you would put your pencil down somewhere on the page and you would get to fold over the page and keep moving your pencil around on the page. And then you can move over the fold whenever you like and then you can jump back and forth onto one side of the fold, the other side of the fold, or move around the card and you keep moving back and forth to try and figure out, well, when do I want to jump and to try and get through the maze. And it was made, was originally a a very simple maze into a very complicated maze and a very complicated little puzzle. And this is an example of a puzzle. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's no longer just a simple game. It's a puzzle, but with a game, there's some level of replayability or you're playing, you, you really can play a game with other opponents and other people, or it's something different each time. But the puzzle, once you've solved it, you've solved it. It's a solvable puzzle. It's completely solvable. There is theoretically, unless you just forget it or you just want to experience it again, but theoretically there is no replayability again. Once you solved it, you solved it and it's done, you know? Sure. I mean, 
yes, once once you've solved something and you've cracked the code, so to speak, uh, you you already know the secret. You've peeked back behind the curtain, and then it's not something. There's no replayability involved. Mm-hmm. And I know that at least for me, there's a number of of these sort of games that to me are also a lot of fun. You know, I, I mean, I'm a I'm a solo gamer, but that doesn't mean that the only type of games I'm going to always want to play are solo games like, you know, Viticulture or Scythe or Tiny Big Galaxies or these sort of games. Uh, a, a solvable puzzle is also fun. The, only, the biggest problem with a solvable puzzle is, well, what happens once you've solved it? And usually mm-hmm. the answer to that is you go get another one. <laughs> Generally speaking, which ones have been some of your favorites? What have you liked? Well, some of the ones that I've played recently are there's one called Houdini that I've had a ton of fun. Now, solve puzzles can be all sorts of different sorts of play spaces. A solve puzzle could be a jigsaw puzzle. Um, to me, that's a little tame, but if that's your thing, go for it. More power to you. Uh, a solve puzzle could be something like this folders, which is very much a 2D space. Houdini really blasts that very much into the 3D space. The way it works with Houdini is you get two rings, two uh, two cables, two, two ropes, a plastic Houdini piece, uh, some felt pants that go on the Houdini, and the lockbox. And each page of the book gives you an arrangement to put them in. And you'll loop them all together, and then at the end of it, you will lock Houdini in. And your goal is to get Houdini out of this rope knot arrangement without unlocking any of the locks, without unlocking any of the ropes. And these are brain benders, and they are not, you know, it's not a puzzle, it's not a, ma- it's not a maze where you sit there looking at it. You know, in comparison with, I don't know if you've ever heard of something like Rush Hour, but I think this is one of the more famous of the 2D solvable puzzles, where you look at the board, and you have a red car, and the red car slides on the track right and left. The goal is to slide the red car all the way out the door on the right. But there's all these other cars that are around, and all the cars can slide up and down, but they'll bump into each other. And so you have to slide all the cars around in a puzzle until you can get the red car out the door. And so that'll take, move the red car a little bit, slide some cars around it, move the red car a little bit, slide some more cars around it. And so there's a lot of sliding, but that's very much 2D. I mean, it comes with a lot of nice 3D components because we live in a 3D space. But really, any of the height is not really relevant. With Houdini... A lot of that, it's very much, there's a thing here. It's a knot puzzle. It's a twist-type puzzle. And it's very much all built in a very real space. And so it makes you look at it and you're like, well, how can I manipulate this in order to get Houdini out of this lock? Which was a lot of fun to me. I really very much enjoyed doing that. Are there multiple cards for Houdini, like there are for Rush Hour? And each card has a different sort of lock system that you need to solve, and then you move to another card, and it has a different lock rope system that you need to work out or is it just one thing yes there are there are i think it's 40 uh locks involved going from easy medium hard expert and uh so you go through each one of them and so theoretically you uh increase the difficulties go through them now i don't think i've solved all the puzzles yet and it's not i don't think it's because i got stuck on anyone it's just a matter i'll play some for a bit and then that's it for then i don't have to sit there and play through all of them all at once which makes it more fun you sort of get to expand out the fun of it rather than blowing through it all at one time but uh, sure so yeah it does come with with multiple puzzles of that i think that I mean, that, but also more specifically Rush Hour reminds me of 
one of my favorite puzzle-type games, which is Tangrams, which is certainly not new. It's been around for years and years and years and years and years, and basically the way that it works is that there, you have a set of little geometric shapes, triangles in various sizes, a parallelogram, a couple of different, like one square, I think, and you are trying to create, you will each, you have a deck of cards in addition to these little wooden shapes. On each card is a silhouette of a shape, whether that's a rabbit or a candle or a house or a man, and you are trying to use those shapes to create that silhouette. Um, and obviously it has to match the silhouette, it can't go out and it can't be a different shape. And it's very challenging, and once you've solved that, then you move on to another card. I think that what makes these games more fun is that the puzzles themselves are the cards, but the whether that's cars in Rush Hour, or if it's the shapes in Tangrams, or if it's the rope in Knots in Houdini, that's just a system that allows you to you know, have fun with a puzzle. But that's not the puzzle itself. That's a system. And the puzzle that you have solved is the card. And then you move on to another puzzle, which is a card. And that gives much more replayability than something like Folders or something like Labyrinth, where you're trying to slide a ball around a maze in order to get out, where it's literally one puzzle and that's it. Mm-hmm. And it shares a very close space. In my opinion, it shares a very close space with the, with any other solo game. It's just a matter that it's solvable. There's there's no replayability to it. But it, in in my head, in the terms of what it challenges and what sort of enjoyment I get from it, it shares a very similar space to me. I would agree. I think that they are very similar. Of you know, because solo games as well is taking a system and trying to solve it. The problem is is that where you have these puzzles is that there's a system. And there's a challenge, and you're trying to solve that. Whereas solo games add variability because there's you know random luck or deck of cards or things changing, and it's in flux. Whereas with these puzzles, it's not in flux. There is a start and there's a finish, and you go from one to the other without any deviation. Mm-hmm. But it's still fun going through those different puzzles, and it still kind of accesses the same area of the brain of just purely trying to solve a system. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think that also, I mean, there are some ty- although we sort of locked ourselves into our definition of a puzzle, I think there are also some puzzles which are sort of a dexterity game. I know that there are, there are dexterity board games. Some come to mind would be Looping Louie or uh, Rampage or what we talk really classics, Jenga. These, this is what's called sure. a dexterity board game where the challenge of the game is how good you are manipulating the components. And there's also closer to a solvable puzzle type thing one that comes to mind is perplexus are you familiar with perplexus i'm not familiar with perplexus tell me more so perplexus is a sphere and in the sphere is a whole path a a plastic path that goes you know over bridges and on narrow passes and sometimes you have to move across and so you have a marble rolling along this path and you have to rotate and spin the sphere around to roll it down the path and sometimes it'll fall into a spiral and roll and and go and cross an arm and move this piece and move that piece and you're rolling it around you're spinning it around and so it's all about your dexterity to be able to finally control where that marble goes and not let it fall off the path and so here is it's not so much that it's solvable, but it's no longer, this is not a game that you're playing against someone else. It's you versus just it. So this is, 
not so much solvable, but it's a dexterity puzzle. Sure. I think that's similar to what I was talking about, of, of basically just rolling marbles down uh, shifting labyrinths, where it's, it is. It's very much you against the machine, rather than having a variability that's involved. And But here, there's, there's the dexterity element that's involved. And uh, I know that uh, I, I do have one perplexus with me. I have the perplexus. Um, I think it's the perplexus original I have. Uh, but I think they actually recently came out with a brand new perplexus, which to me looks really cool. Only because, you know, I am personally a Star Wars fan. The perplexus Death Star. <laughs> the perplexus Death Star. That's cute. Um, all right. I mean, I, I as a general rule, I, I appreciate things that tie in to other genres that I like just because there's a familiarity that goes into it. Um, so when you have, you know, that sort of systems, uh, and this seems like a perfect fit between a spherical sort of puzzle and a Death Star. Um, so that's cute. I mean, that's essentially what it is. The idea, that, the idea that they have here is that your marble is making a run on the Death Star and trying to reach the core to blow it up. But I mean... Essentially, it's the same sort of thing. You have your marble trying to roll across these narrow spaces. But I mean, sometimes, like with this one, I haven't had a chance to play it. I've seen it at uh, the local Target. Uh, but, I mean, you get to ride an X-Wing across the path, for example, instead of just you know, really? a generic cup arm. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> it's, I can't believe it's so expensive, though. That seems shocking. Amazon here has it listed at over $50. That seems surprising somehow. I hopefully it'll go down. I mean, yeah, with the, with the original perplexuses, like the perplexus original is only $16 and even the Epic is $21. Yeah. It's unfortunately, I mean, it's a brand new toy. It just came out for the force Friday stuff. Um, yeah. so it's still coming up more expensive, but hopefully it'll go down in price at one point. Dan. Sure. I mean, it reminds me, there's another one that I have speaking of, similar puzzle games that are also spherical was a I don't even remember it's been so long was a sphere that had I think six different round dials on this and each of those dials had little sliding pieces that had numbers one through nine Uh, each uh, dial each circular dial on this sphere there were six of them was colored and had one through nine tiles and you would have to slide them across similar to a Rubik's cube in order to get them all in the same color in the same place in the same, you know, series one through nine and slide them across each other was uh, challenging, but also fun. And there's a sense of, you know, you just enjoy the tactility of all the, the fact that you have this sphere in your hand and you're kind of rolling it through it. And just, you know, sometimes you're not even paying attention to letting your hand work like you would with a, a Rubik's Cube, which again, by the way, is another good example of a puzzle game yep. that you're trying to solve. So I, I think that people appreciate the the tactility and the physicality of these games as well as the mental stimulation, and that's why they're so popular. Yep. And I, I mean, I guess I just don't see them coming up that much on the one-player guild or other places. But to me, I think that this is also an enjoyable... I, I think that for someone who enjoys a solo board game, I think that this is also something that you know it's worth worth taking a look into. Yeah, I would agree. I think that it's... To me, these things are the most fun 
and useful just as sometimes desk toys or if you want to put them on your shelves and they're very pretty and they're interesting to look at and you bring guests over and you're like, check out this Death Star puzzle. And they'll sit down and they'll try and solve it for a little bit and, and give uh, you know, play around with it and try and work the system. And then you, you know, bring out another board game that you want to play with them in the meantime. So they kind of act as these like physical little fillers for people. Yep. And I'm sure that probably I bet a bunch of people already out there are playing uh, with these puzzles. And I'd love to hear what uh, sort of stuff other people are liking out there. Yeah, if anyone has you know their favorite puzzle that they like, um, or their favorite system of puzzles, whatever it might be, feel free to hit it in the comments. Let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Yep, exactly. All right, well, uh, Yitz, it was very nice having you online to talk with us today. Thank you very much for coming on out. My pleasure. Always happy to be here. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening.